by the Institute for the Study of War, who are excellent, and this is a really good piece of research, mm. um, using a lot of satellite data. They have they've logged where the Russians are digging in on the uh, east side of the Dnieper River. Um, and so the uh, Kherson, Kherson City uh, is here, the Ukrainians took Kherson City, and all of these triangles represent fixed fortifications which the Russians have built. All the seas represent concentrations of troops, and a bit in a barracks there, for instance. Uh, another barracks here. And what it shows us is that the Russians are really fortifying their side of the river, opposite Kherson City, but here, this is Novokokovka. The Russians really seem to expect the Ukrainians to try to cross the Dnieper River, probably around Novokokovka. The other thing that's interesting is that you see how much, how, how they fortified all of their lines of communication. Ukraine is well positioned to regain the initiative and to launch counteroffensives in critical sectors of the current front line, says the Institute for the Study of War, adding that ongoing Russian offensive along the Svatova Kremina line around Bakhmut and along the Avdiivka Donetsk city and Vugledar front lines have failed to make more than incremental tactical gains in 2023. Ukrainian forces likely conducted a localized counterattack southwest of Bakhmut amid growing Russian discussion about the potential Ukrainian counteroffensives in this area. An influential American think tank has announced it believes Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive has begun. In a long thread on Twitter, the Institute for the Study of War said on Thursday that it had seen activity throughout Ukraine and indicators suggesting operations were underway across the country. The ISW points out that Ukraine will not formally announce its counteroffensive has started, while Russia and its bloggers will have no qualms about making claims it's repelling assaults, as it did on Monday, pictures purporting to show Ukrainian armoured vehicles being destroyed. The ISW also says it may take time to assess which side has the upper hand in the counteroffensive. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys for this podcast. My guest is Jennifer Caffarella. She's the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Institute for the Study of War and a National Security Fellow. Uh, Jennifer, thank you for coming on. You bet. Um, so I became aware of the ISW probably shortly after the uh, full-scale invasion of Russia uh, into Ukraine. Um, and I've been receiving, like, daily emails and briefs, uh, you know, probably since March of 2022. And um, it's really a fantastic resource. I, you know, I've shared it several times on my uh, personal social media accounts. Um, and it's really impressive, the... Uh, the methodology uh, and, and the way that you guys sort of confirm information. Um, so, and then obviously there's been a lot going on in the past 24 hours uh, with the, the attempted coup by Progozin, which seems to now have ended, uh, the leader of the Wagner Group. Um, but so we'll get into all of that. But can we start with... Um, you know, maybe if you can talk some about your background and, and how you ended up where you're at now. Sure. Well, firstly, thanks uh, for the kind words about our coverage of the war in Ukraine. We have a small team uh, that I can talk about more, but we've been doing this daily uh, since that invasion, the current invasion began February 24th of last year. So it's been a long haul for us. And we're really proud of what we've been able to accomplish, uh, keeping that daily rhythm of those products going out. So happy to talk about that later on in more depth. Um, in terms of my own story, I joined ISW full-time uh, in 2014, just a few days before ISIS took Mosul uh, in northern Iraq and then went on its blitzkrieg offensive across Iraq and Syria. So I showed up just in time, so to speak, 
Um, I was on our Syria team uh, to start. And so I dove right into our collection and analysis and mapping of the ISIS takeover, uh, as well as our broader project on the Syrian civil war. So that was the first few years of my tenure as an analyst at ISW, uh, which, as you might imagine, was quite uh, high op tempo, although candidly not quite as high here as the situation in Ukraine has been. Uh, this is a new threshold for us. But I was thrilled to join the team um, back in 2014. I actually was a graduate of a war studies program that ISW hosts every summer. Uh, and I was recruited out of that program um, and given a fellowship to be uh, our Evans Hansen fellow um, as a war studies graduate joining the analytic team. So what ISW's mission is, is really twofold. First, we seek to educate civilian leaders on the use of military force and you know, current conflicts overseas where either U.S. forces are currently deployed uh, or conflicts that threaten U.S. national security interests. Um, we also support the warfighter and we do a lot of pre-deployment uh, briefings and trainings, as well as going downrange when asked or invited um, by senior military commanders to advise. So that's a huge piece of what we do. Uh, but that war studies program is also core to our broader educational uh, efforts and our desire to foster young national security talent. And so we're thrilled to welcome, you know, a robust team of interns every semester and to use our internship and our analyst program to train basic skills in tradecraft for what we call intelligence from open sources. Um, you know, nothing we do is classified, it's all open source and that's so that we can talk about it and so that we can provide something that is not redundant to what the intelligence community provides, but is complementary um, and can be used in the public. So my 10 14 has really been supporting our analytic work and then continuing to invest in the development of our analytic teams, um, including the one that is doing such a great job covering Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's really uh, phenomenal work. Um, you know, I, I also do some open source uh, Intel work, mostly for articles that I publish uh, through a company that I co-founded uh, with uh, and my my co-founder partner in this um He's an he's been an open source Intel analyst for years. Uh, he worked for a DoD contractor, and then uh, so we had a relationship. Um, and and he was he was before that he was a journalist. Uh, so I would kind of uh, when he was reporting on national security type stuff, uh, you know, if he needed to speak to someone from the Intel sort of side of the house or special operations, uh, I helped facilitate that for him, uh, and then. You know, he, he, you know, with the election of Trump, things became so partisan, and uh, and obviously things have gotten worse since then on the political side. And we kind of got tired of that, and and we were interested in just providing good information to people. And that's kind of how uh, our company Strike Source uh, came about. And um, but so I kind of got introduced to OSINT. Uh, probably two and a half years ago, three years ago. Um, so it's really fascinating, and it, it appears that, you know, governments around the world are starting to invest more into this capability, and it's it's really interesting that you can sort of find uh, all this information on different things. We, we primarily focus on national security kind of things. We're, we're looking at Russia and China, and uh, you can. it's amazing what you can find on the open web. Yeah, absolutely. The availability of public information really continues to skyrocket. And that's been great. I mean, the Syrian civil war uh, at the time was a high watermark in how much information was available publicly, uh, pushed out you know, across a variety of social media platforms, YouTube, what have you, um, as initially the Syrian opposition and then more radical elements you know, tried to document their war against the Assad regime. And we weren't sure, candidly, going into the war in Ukraine, how much information we would get out of this conflict, um, given that it, you know, it's state on state. It's not quite um, as permissive of information environment, in part because the Russians have been shaping it for so many years. But we've really been pleased um, at the extent of the information that's available. And at ISW, 
uh, we're expanding our technology partnerships as well to take advantage of you know what's available commercially as well in terms of satellite imagery and you know other sources of data, which has been really exciting for our team to continue to innovate, um, even as we you know stick with the basics of what we know how to do well um, in terms of our analytic tradecraft. Yeah, the the satellite imagery part is is really fascinating. Um, uh, I, I was doing some research for a piece that I wanted to write on Crimea, and um, I had gotten some information uh, about partisan activity um, and uh, you know the the sort of geospatial intelligence uh, world is is quite fascinating. But um, it, for the audience, it's essentially the the skill of looking at satellite imagery and, and determining, uh, you know, what events are taking place or, or what took place, you know, at a certain date in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, I interviewed a guy who has a company that, that they specialize in this and they work with the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, one thing I did learn, sort of just learning the basics of it, is that it's quite expensive to um, to access uh, some of these platforms that provide up to date imagery, um, but but it's it's fascinating all the same. Indeed, and we've been excited to establish a uh, a formal geospatial team at ISW now to take what we had been doing in terms of mapping um, for a long time and really try to scale it up as some of these. Um, partnerships become available and, you know, some of the technology tools as well are really getting quite good um, in the public domain. And so we're excited to be leveraging that for our Ukraine mapping, but then also preparing to apply this uh, to other areas of interest, including uh, the Chinese problem set. Uh, so prior to, um, you know, the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, your focus and your specialty was on uh the Middle East and uh, so these Islamic terror groups? Yeah, so I began on the Syria team um, doing Syria and counter-ISIS work, um, including some trips down to support Operation Inherent Resolve um, in the early years of that campaign. And so that was a main focus for all of ISW um, from, you know, the 2014 to sort of 2018, 2019 time period, um, after which, as an institute, we started putting more focus on our Russia program, um, as you know, we recognized Putin's intervention in the Syrian war in 2015 as part of his, you know, global strategy to reestablish Russia as a superpower, um, but also uh, to generate capabilities to test, you know, his weapon systems, his forces for what he, it now is clear, was planning to do in Ukraine. Um, so we did some Russia planning exercises. Um, we don't do, you know, full war games um, in the, you know normal traditional scope of war games, but we do a lot of simulation exercises at ISW. Um, periodically, we're doing one right now actually on China and Taiwan. And so back then we started to think through, you know, what are scenarios that the United States could face from Russia in coming years? Uh, we didn't game out this invasion of Ukraine, I'm sorry to say. And frankly, we were surprised that Putin decided to do it um, because our team took a look in January of last year at the force that Russia was assembling on Ukraine's borders and said, he can't be serious about an invasion with this force. <laughs> There's not enough infantry. He's not prepared. Um, so we, among you know many others, were actually surprised when he pulled the trigger. And you know I think the rest is now history, indicating that his force was in fact not prepared for that intervention. Um, but again, so we had been setting a lot of the analytic uh, foundations for our current coverage of Ukraine. Um, you know, for many years. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> that's a great point because, um, uh, you know, obviously they, I, I forget the exact number of troops that led the initial invasion, uh, but whatever the number was, it, it wasn't enough uh, it, from a, a military strategic perspective if you wanted to, you know, properly control a country the size of Ukraine. And, um, I think the the results of the you know attempted uh, uh, the attempt to take Kiev and and uh, some of those areas in the sort of middle of the country uh, failed uh, miserably because of the lack of support um, 
and and I guess the troop number and one of the the initial big battles was at uh, Hostomel Airport, um, and really they they uh, I, I think it was Russian special forces and maybe paratroopers, uh, you know, attempted to take the airport. So then they could then have Russian aircraft bring more troops and equipment in and I guess maybe fight from there. But uh, they didn't have the support that would be necessary to to fight when you're is essentially surrounded by Ukrainian forces. And um, I think in part, some of the reason why they did that was apparently Putin was getting really bad information. And, um, uh, you know, aside from doing some OSINT work on this war. I, I, I've had relationships in Ukraine for 15 years, and um, so I've known people there, and I happen to know some guys who are now part of this uh, special forces and infantry and, and have been fighting since the beginning of this full-scale invasion. And uh, one of my friends told me that they found, um, you know, Russian troops with uh, parade uniforms and instructions on how to conduct uh, these parades, which they had planned to happen in Kiev. Um, so it was really kind of a head scratcher um, in terms of like what Putin thought was going to happen uh, when they crossed the border. Yeah, it's it certainly has been fascinating, and you know I'm sure we're going to learn far more as the years progress about what actually went down in the Kremlin uh, during this pivotal time. But I want to give a lot of credit to my colleague Natalia Bugayova, who's no longer with ISW full time, but she is a non-resident fellow, um, and she did a ton of work um, as to helping to establish our Russia portfolio and laying the, the strategic foundations for how to understand the Kremlin and Putin's decision making. Um, and you know, he is a dictator, right. Who has been in power for over 20 years with an increasingly narrow set of advisors and folks that he listened to, he listens to many of whom have also been there for 20 years. And we are seeing the consequences of that isolation, um, in his decision-making. It's unclear how well he even now understands how his forces are performing in Ukraine. And so his decision-making um, is tragic, of course, because he's he's putting Russia on a path that has been horrific, not only for Ukraine, but I would argue also for Russia, um, but also does not look likely to improve anytime soon. Although we'll see what the consequences are now that Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner um, mercenary group, seems to have struck a deal with Putin to de-escalate. Um, whether that leads to meaningful changes in the Russian Ministry of Defense or you know the Russian. Um, leadership structure more broadly, I think, remains to be seen. It's still possible that escalation could occur. Uh, but the mere fact that Putin is backed into this particular corner is a mess of his own making, frankly. And I don't think it could happen to a nicer guy. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and it's, I mean, this entire uh, sort of Wagner saga, it appears, you know, according to reports that came out I don't know, in the last hour or so, that they've made some sort of deal to uh, return to, I think, Ukraine, to their bases in Ukraine. Um, but, I mean, it's... I think this is the first time uh, for a, that a nuclear power faced, like, a, a real coup attempt um, where things could have been bad. But according to a report I saw uh, by, by an OSINT analyst, um, they were saying that there was some... Part of the deal had to do with making changes at the Russian MOD. Um, and then it, it kind of makes you wonder, like, was this whole thing staged potentially? Um, you know, th there were reports from the Russian, I'm sorry, from the Wagner Group uh, official telegram channel that they had shot down some helicopters. I'm, I'm not sure how accurate that is. Um, so it, it just makes you kind of wonder, like, w w was this a, you know, some sort of... Uh, maneuver by Putin or, or, or was this really a, a challenge to Putin? And then, you know, if this, this deal is reached and the Wagner retreats from whatever point they made it to, however far they were from Moscow, uh, is it going to end there? And, and will there be some, uh, you know, heads rolling, so to speak, uh, down the line? Yeah, definitely a lot to watch. I think it is still early. You know, Prigozhin is claiming that he's ordering his forces back, you know, to once they came. I think we should watch and see 
to make sure that is in fact what is happening um, and watch to see, you know, what the contours of any deal are and how well it sticks. But certainly a very dramatic moment uh, in Russia and one that creates a window of opportunity for the Ukrainians, which it seems the Ukrainians are already exploiting. Um, and we're seeing them attack across the front line in a number of locations uh, in order to take advantage of what may be a temporary disruption, but an important disruption nonetheless in the Russian chain of command. Uh, so in terms of, um, you know, how the Ukrainians may be able to, may be able to take advantage of this, uh, essentially, would it be a scenario where the, the Russian troops are really don't know what's happening and they're sort of disoriented and then the Ukrainians just make, you know, pushes at strategic points or? Yeah, so that's what we're seeing. Um, you know, we've been watching today to see if any Russian forces will get redeployed away from the front lines. Um, if it is true that Prigozhin is de-escalating, then it seems like that is relatively less likely. Um, but look, having a, you know, mercenary group storm the capital <laughs> is not exactly a morale boosting event. Um, right. Although we'll see because, you know, we don't know how popular it will be for Shoigu, the Russian Minister of Defense, and Grasimov, the head of the Russian Armed Forces, to be ousted if indeed that is what has happened. Um, so if, you know, Prigozhin now takes a senior position in the government or has otherwise secured a greater role for his own forces within Ukraine, uh, that's bad, right, uh, for Ukraine. And so this this may be a temporary window. But again, I mean, the, the Rubicon being crossed here really is going to hold, even if Putin manages to, to de-escalate this. He was forced at gunpoint, essentially, uh, to grant major concessions to a guy who is technically outside of the chain of command, uh, Prigozhin. That's a huge inflection. It does weaken Putin, um, both domestically and in terms of the perception of Russian power, which frankly has been among the harder you know, myths to squash in this war, where folks continue to overestimate what the Russians are capable of even as the Russians continue to fail to, to accomplish not only their strategic objectives, but quite often even their operational and tactical objectives on the battlefield. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Wagner. Um, I, I think they first, uh, you know, sort of uh, made their mark in Syria. Um, so what were some of the things that you saw from Wagner in Syria uh, prior to this uh, Ukraine war? Sure. So the most prominent um, moment with Wagner in Syria is, of course, the moment where they decided to attack a SDF position, our local partner forces, um, and the U.S. contingent supporting the SDF, uh, you know, in eastern Syria, uh, which resulted to in very, very, very high casualties for those Wagner forces, um, which were essentially, you know, left hanging by the Russians um, to take those casualties. So. The role that that was indicative of is support to the Assad regime um, in plugging some of the manpower gaps that Assad actually continues to this day to face, um, where the mercenaries have come in, you know, to support things like securing oil and natural gas infrastructure um, and other key infrastructure in regime-held Syria that the regime, you know, can't or won't secure, and which happens to give Wagner lucrative contracts um, and access to, you know, oil smuggling and all kinds of black market enterprises uh, within Syria that no doubt is useful to, you know, Wagner's coffers and their long-term expansion. Uh, from Syria, Wagner also was able to project into Africa. Uh, and so it's the Russian position in Syria more broadly, including its air and naval base um, in western Syria on the Mediterranean that has enabled Russian power projection into Africa, and that includes a heavy contingent of Wagner, um, which has fought in a number of conflicts across the African continent, but including in Libya, um, as well as, you know, places um, where there have been jihadist threats, including places like Mali. So that expansion of Wagner um, was, I think, clearly instrumental in preparing Wagner for the role that it is now tragically playing in Ukraine. But we'll see um, what the fate of Wagner is now that they have thrown down against Putin in this way um, and whether or not Wagner remains as globally postured as they have been moving forward. So one of the things that uh, seemed to be a pattern with, with Wagner is like uh, there was sort of this infamous video from Syria where I, I think they... I don't know if they executed a Wagner guy or if it was a, a Syrian 
you know, a, a Syrian soldier working for Assad who who tried to flee a battle or something, but they essentially executed him on camera, I think with a sledgehammer. Um, it was pretty disgusting video. And then uh, we've seen some, of the, some similar videos coming from Ukraine. Um, I, I believe there was a fellow who was a, a, a Wagner soldier, and he was captured by the Ukrainians and then exchanged uh, in a prisoner swap, and then they executed him with a sledgehammer uh, on video, so it, it appears that there seems to be a, a series of what would be a, a considered a war crime, uh, you know, uh, perpetuated by Wagner in the Middle East, in Ukraine, and from reports that I've seen also in Africa. Um, is that consistent with what you've seen? Absolutely, and frankly, I should have emphasized that at the start. This is a highly brutal you know, irregular force that has conducted, you know, war crimes in essentially every place that they've been involved that I'm aware of, um, and are responsible for atrocities in Ukraine as well. And the ruthlessness of the Wagner approach to forcing its own members to advance on the front lines, you know, includes brutal executions, as you've mentioned, of either attempted defectors, um, or of folks that, you know, try to break and run, um, and that brutality has been a, a key part, not only of Wagner's strategy in Ukraine, but also, you know, Wagner's identity and its messaging. Um, they're recruiting in prisons, um, as I'm sure you know, and they are forcing um, convicts in addition to their actual, you know, mercenaries to take incredible risks and incredible losses on front lines in Ukraine in order to advance so it's quite ironic that Prigozhin, you know, claims to be trying to defend Russian life and minimize Russian casualties and everything he's doing within Russia, when in fact his forces are among the worst treated on this battlefield. Uh, and that's saying something, given, you know, that the Russian regular forces aren't treated that well either. Uh, so, I mean, this is mainly like in discourse online, Twitter and stuff like that, Um you know, there will be, you know, maybe a report about some of this sort of uh, brutality by Wagner. Um, and then I, I feel that, I mean, obviously there's a a contingent of folks who live in the West or, or perhaps in Asia and they're very supportive of Russia and sort of take this stance that... Um, you know, this entire thing is, is America's fault and NATO's fault and, uh, and you know, they went in for Nazis and things like that. Uh, but among some of that crowd, they have, uh, you know, large followings. Um, unfortunately, like on Twitter uh, specifically, some of these guys will post these just outrageous things uh, about what's happening. And, and you'll have like an Elon Musk sort of interact with these tweets, uh, boosting it and, and giving them credibility uh, but, you know, among that community, you know, when people talk about how brutal Wagner is, they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, in, in all wars, these kind of things happen. Uh, and then specifically with the U.S. and Afghanistan, Iraq, these kind of things took place as well. What do you say to people like that? Listen, the violence against especially civilians that the Russians have unleashed in Ukraine is deliberate, it is structured, and it is, in my view, an attempt at genocide because its purpose is to eliminate the Ukrainian identity and not only to seize all of Ukraine and you know forcibly incorporate it into Russia, but to destroy Ukrainian heritage, to just to eliminate the Ukrainian language. The Russians are, for example, taking tens of thousands reportedly of Ukrainian children forcibly from their families and bringing them into Russia, either into camps or in some cases giving them to Russian families. So what the Russians are trying to do is eliminate Ukraine. And that is true at the strategic level in terms of Russia's objectives in this war. And it is true all the way down to the tactical level, including how essentially all elements of this Russian invasion force, both, you know, Ministry of Defense and contractors like Wagner are acting on the battlefield. The systemic rapes, the systemic torture, 
the so-called filtration camps, which aren't getting you know quite enough coverage in my view, but are camps where the Russians are rounding up all of these civilians to filter out who they think is you know desirable and undesirable, uh, presumably based on their willingness to submit to the Russian occupation. It's horrific. Whereas what Ukraine is doing in this war is fighting for its own survival. Ukraine is not targeting civilians. They're not targeting Russian civilians. They're not targeting civilian areas in Russian-occupied zones. And that includes areas you know, where Russia may actually have had local support. There is no fair comparison of the military strategy or the tactics of these two adversaries. And frankly, it is extremely disappointing to see Americans be so confused about what is happening in Ukraine. Because what Ukraine is doing is deciding to accept the price of freedom over subjugation to Russian occupation and the elimination of their national identity. And that choice to fight for freedom is something that should resonate with Americans. And the fact that it doesn't, I think, shows just how you know, confused and partisan our politics and our national discourse has often become, but also how successful Russian information operations in recent decades have been in shaping how Americans see the world, but the Russians in particular, because there are still layers of this, these myths about what Russia is and how Russia behaves that, as I mentioned before, we're still working to peel back. And the myth that Russia is somehow doing something in Ukraine that is normal in warfare or acceptable in warfare is absolutely Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to 4Patriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use the code RECON. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of frustrating. Um, you know, as you just mentioned, like, America had to fight a foreign power to earn our independence. And, um, you know, the like, I, I see folks, uh, mainly in the West, you know, who talk about, you know, they want peace and, and there should be negotiations. And, and it, it all kind of, like, sort of hints at, you know, either uh, overtly, I'm sorry, either like sort of under the surface or overtly that like the Ukrainians could end this if they wanted to, right? And, uh, you know, they should just negotiate some kind of deal where they give away territory to a foreign uh, country. Um, And, you know, there are all these groups, uh, there was a and, and I don't want to name them to, to give them any sort of platform, but there were groups that were protesting in D.C. and, um, you know, essentially to stop the U.S. from sending support to the Ukrainians. And um, it, it, it's kind of head-scratching because they never talk about the real way to end this war would be for the Russians to leave, right? It's always like the Ukrainians have to give in and give away right. territory and instead of just like the guys who are not Ukrainians should just leave the country and the, the war will be over. And uh, there was some kind of group that had some sort of like 
you know, peace, you know, air quotes, peace rally in, in Brooklyn uh, in the last couple of weeks. And then uh, there was a Ukrainian woman who just happened to be in the area of like the vicinity of this sort of rally. And, and she, uh, she saw signs and she sort of stopped by to, to speak to some of the organizers. And um, they didn't like what she had to say and they were telling her to leave. So it's like all of these folks in the West who are talking about the U.S. should stop supporting the Ukrainians in an effort to to get some sort of peace deal. I feel like they don't ever talk to Ukrainians or consider what the Ukrainians want. And uh, as, as I said, I, I've had relationships there for for over a decade. And I, I speak to people there quite regularly and, and like none of them are talking about like, yeah, we should give away, you know, the Donbass or Crimea or, or, or any of these things. So it's just, it's really frustrating to see it. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there's a bias in the West and we saw this with Syria too, where the bias is for anything that stops the shooting immediately. Um, and I get that. I would like for the shooting to stop as well. But if we consider what a just end to this war means, it means that the Ukrainians living under Russian occupation no longer have to live under the brutality of Russian occupation. So Ukraine should not have to, in my view, allow its population to continue to undergo the brutality of what the Russian forces are inflicting, even behind front lines, and asking Ukrainians to accept something that I don't think Americans would ever accept, I just think is out of line. It's not our war. It's their war. They're deciding what price that they're going to pay because they face annihilation if they roll over and let the Russians do their bidding, or they face extraordinary high casualties to liberate their country. They've chosen to fight. They've asked for our support in that fight. I think it's worthwhile to us that we support them, not only because they have a chance of winning and are winning, um, but also on the principle. This should be what the United States stands for. Uh, and I think we have just gotten so confused about what proper diplomacy means and what de-escalation means that we're having a hard time sometimes seeing straight because it is not escalatory to defend your communities from being wiped off the face of the earth. That's not an escalation. It's escalatory to invade and try to eliminate you know, communities from the face of the earth. So the people that need to stop this war are the Russians. And, you know, I think any leader in Kyiv uh, would take the position that Zelensky has taken, which is that, no, we're reconquering every square inch and we're liberating all of our population. And those are the objectives and they're not going to negotiate, you know, short of that, that goal. Yeah. And I think just the the unity displayed by the Ukrainians uh, is a sign that they're willing to fight till the end, essentially to to achieve the goal of, of liberation. And you know, to highlight that, uh, you know, prior to the full scale invasion, there were several different political parties that uh, were all sort of vying for power and opposed Zelensky and and things like that. And after the invasion, they all put their differences aside and sort of united, uh, you know, in an effort to to expel the Russians. So it's like, um, from the American standpoint, you know, we didn't give away states to the Brits during the Revolutionary War. We fought them bitterly, and and we received support from the French, uh, you know, from a from an outside country, and and that helped us win the war. So it's like. You know, our nation was, uh, we went through a similar thing. And um, and and one thing that I, I, you know, just seeing this discourse online is I've seen these images from, uh, I guess, the mid-30s or, or the, the late 30s, early 40s of folks uh, protesting the U.S. Uh, joining the war and fighting the Nazis. And you see all these signs saying, you know, Hitler isn't that bad or, or this and that, like these black and white photos. And it's, it's just quite remarkable to see uh, in some ways history repeating itself, right? Um, okay, so can we talk a little bit about uh, some of the way that the ISW uh, sort of collects the information and verifies it uh, and 
you know, some of that process before it's reported, uh, because I, I've done some writing on like uh, partisan activity behind enemy lines. And as I mentioned before, I have contacts in Ukraine and in particular in the Ukrainian special forces. So I'm able to speak to some of them uh, and to get some information about, you know, what they're able to talk about for what's happening on the partisan front. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, some of the information that I gathered uh, from my article and, and I gave you guys credit was from the ISW's reporting on, on partisan activity. So can we talk about some of that? Well, thank you. Yeah. So we don't do sort of primary source collection directly. Um, so we don't have a network in any of these areas. We don't pull from local sources. We rely only on what is available publicly. Uh, and that's just an institutional decision uh, for what value we think we can add. Um, and we've just decided that there is sufficiently rich information available publicly to enable us to make a meaningful contribution um, to the open source discourse based on that alone. So that doesn't mean we don't have relationships, you know, and we don't talk to folks, but it does mean that our you know, analytic work and our publications are very strictly limited uh, to what we collect. And we make pretty much all of our sources available um, in EndNotes and, you know, other means to make sure that we're being clear about where we're drawing our information. Uh, so that does, of course, create some limits to what we can cover um, and sometimes how quickly we can cover things, right? Because the the flow of information and being able to verify something like a, you know, YouTube video claiming to show something and corroborate it with a second angle on that event or, you know, secondary reporting is sometimes slow. Um, but we accept that slowdown in order to be, you know, as analytically rigorous and accurate as we can be, um, rather than to try to chase, you know, sort of the, the top hits on Twitter or, you know, the most retweets because we said it first, we're trying to be accurate. Um, and provide a more synthetic assessment of what's happening on the ground or, you know, the decision making, decision making taking place um, in Moscow. And that's our contribution to the open source landscape. We encourage there to be a vibrant open source landscape. Uh, so, you know, we don't think we should be the only source covering Ukraine or the only source that people watch. We think we're making a contribution. Uh, but there are many other, you know, organizations and folks that are making additional very important contributions and we think that overall that contributes to a better national security discourse and debate and a more healthy one. So while there are, unfortunately, as you've mentioned, you know, sometimes voices that are taking a negative position or, you know, repeating disinformation from the Russians or other actors, and that's a problem, um, the, the existence of debate and discussion is very important. It's a, it's a hallmark of the free world, and it is one of our national strengths, even though it is difficult and frustrating and in some cases disappointing. Um, so we encourage that and we try to, you know, lead by example and show in part what can be done responsibly uh, and to good effect with public information to hopefully, you know, raise the caliber of that debate and discussion over time. Yeah, and I think the, you know, what you just said in, in terms of sort of waiting to verify things, uh, you know, as opposed to just like tweeting out you know, something that you've seen on a link somewhere. I think that kind of separates like these sort of professionals from the folks who just want to get clicks uh, and what have you. And I think um, you see a lot of that, like, you know, for example, with this, the situation with Wagner and, and, you know, their attempted coup or, or you know, however people want to call it, um, there was a bunch of platforms just retweeting and posting things, um, you know, without verifying it. And I, I think that's really what separates a, a professional, you know, approach as opposed to like, I just want to get clicks um, because you can, you know, verify videos, uh, you know, using sort of geolocation techniques and um, and multiple sources. Um, I think I'm not sure exactly how long this in particular has been happening um, but it's it's sort of stood out to me with this most recent situation with Wagner and, and the Russian MOD, where you're now seeing like major publications are getting information from the Russian web, right? Like they're looking at the official Wagner Telegram or the official Russian MOD Telegram, uh, and I'm I'm not sure exactly how long they have been doing that. Um, 
you know, uh, but it's it's just stood out to me in this most recent uh, incident. Uh, but you know, like I have, uh, you know, sort of my my friend group that has nothing to do with any, you know, analy- analytical activity or national security stuff. They're just sort of normal people living their normal lives, and, and they discuss some of these things. And um, it, it just like some of this. Like the idea that you can search the Russian web or you can search the Chinese web and gather open source information is completely foreign to them, even if I'm talking about it and explaining, hey, this is how it works or whatever. So I think for the average person, that's that may be the case where this sort of open source intel way of gathering information is, is still fairly new. And uh, I think the, the sort of normal population hasn't like, caught on to it yet. Sure. Yeah, it it was very large, you know, back when the Syrian civil war erupted in 2011. Um, a lot of news organizations would quote directly from, you know, the Assad regime's public statements and, you know, directly from videos that rebel commanders were publishing um, on a regular basis. And so this isn't inherently new in Ukraine, although the level of of global interest and how sustained that global interest has been um, on Ukraine is new. Uh, and so we're seeing something that is different in scale. Um, but you're right, you know, we're, we're professionals here. And so we accept the slowdown in, you know, not being the first to break news. That's not our job. Um, we're analysts. We're not breaking news. Um, is just something we've decided as an organization. And as a result, sometimes we can't get the media quotes, you know, as, as quick as they'd like. And sometimes other folks get quoted, therefore. Sometimes folks we disagree with because they were ready sooner because they took less time um, to check the sources and go through the analytic process than we do. So we are generally faster than the government um, because we can move in that open source domain very rapidly and we can pivot very quickly because we're a small organization and pivoting is what we do. Um, but we move less quickly than, you know, some of the OSINTers on Twitter who just, you know, sit and, and share partially verified information all day long. So that sweet spot is sort of where we live. Uh, we think it's a good place to be and we think it's adding, you know, real value. It doesn't mean we're never wrong. There's always a risk of being wrong in the public. Well, there's always a risk of being wrong in intelligence, uh, but in the public domain, especially so because the information we're dealing with is inherently partial. Um, but we, you know, stay consistent in the case of Ukraine with our daily rhythm where our updates come out in the evenings and that's just the way it is. And over time, the consistency of our approach has generally enabled us to outperform, you know, folks that are really just trying to chase whatever's happening that given day. Uh, th- there was one thing I, I wanted to mention earlier. Uh, I com- completely forgot. Um, when we were talking about uh uh, you know the the Russian sort of disinformation and and the the big the folks with big platforms in the West uh, sort of regurgitating that um, and and how you know it's it's not NATO's fault it's not America's fault uh, that they invaded is that uh, this isn't the first time that the Russians have done this where they um, you know in the former Soviet Union you know they would force uh, these uh, sort of Soviet states, they would, they would force Russian citizens into these states. Um, and then, you know, if, if something was happening that was not in favor of Moscow, you know, maybe there was a, a someone in a position of, of influence where they were saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't, um, you know, be a part of this union or, or we shouldn't listen to Moscow, uh, you know, their sort of pretext for an invasion would be like, oh, well, the, the Russian-speaking population is in trouble in this country, so therefore we have to protect Russians, and that's why we're going to send tanks and troops and bombs and stuff like that. And it, this 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 playbook is, is what they've done for, for a long time. It's not the first time that this has happened. So it's like if folks would, uh, you know, maybe pick up a book and read about some of this history, then you would start to see the pattern of how... Uh, Moscow operates, uh, in particular when it comes to the, um, you know, the former Soviet states and and countries near um, Russia. Absolutely. And this playbook and the imperialism behind it um, is, in fact, why so many Eastern European countries 
asked to join NATO in order to defend themselves against the threat that Putin made very clear that he posed to their sovereignty and their security moving forward. So the the greatest strategy here, well, not the greatest strategy, but the greatest, I think, source of our confusion um, is in one sense our overestimation of Russia, but in a second sense, that Russian disinformation. I can't emphasize enough how effective the Russians have been in spinning these tales and injecting them into the bloodstream of American discourse that are just flat, not true, but resonate with, you know, how some people want to see the world um, or are effective simply because it's been, you know, dripping, you know, into our discourse for so long that the Russians have been pushing this narrative for so long. Um, And frankly, I don't think the United States, this administration or any administration before it has really done enough to counter um, the effects of that Russian information operation. And, you know, even Ukrainian successes on the battlefield don't yet seem to be enough to convince some folks that it is possible for the Russians to lose a war. Um, And Lord knows what, you know, some of these folks are going to say if the Russians do actually lose the war, um, which I do still think is hopefully possible, um, if not quite likely. Yeah, I mean, even like, um, you know, even when you you hear things like a a NATO expansion, uh, I feel like that in particular is a is the way that the Russians want people to talk about it, like the verbiage, um, because NATO doesn't expand. Right. Countries apply to join NATO. And it's like, (laughs) uh, you know, Russia created the conditions where these smaller states near Russia um, feel threatened enough and rightfully so because they've been invaded numerous times in the past um, and been, uh, you know, subjugated and all kind of atrocities happened. Like, I mean, uh, I'm forgetting the exact time period. Maybe this was in the 1930s or even earlier. I'm, I'm forgetting, but I know there was a famine that happened in Ukraine. Yeah, the that was the genocide in Ukraine. Yeah. Right. Uh, that was a direct result of the powers in Moscow uh, and their decision-making. Um, so it's like the, the Russians create the conditions where these smaller countries who can't really defend themselves for long against the, the bigger Russia, um, they create these conditions to where they the only way they can survive and, and defend themselves is if they're part of some military alliance that, that would defend them. Um, and then they say, oh, well, the reason we need to invade is because these countries who are afraid of us invading are joining an alliance that's, you know, that opposes us. Um, so it, it's like they, they just create this cycle of misery and and disinformation. And, and it's just so strange to me. Like, you know, if you're someone who you don't pay attention to sort of geopolitical events and, you know, you just live your life and whatever you focus on, that's what you focus on. Um to an extent, I can understand because you, you have to sort of put some effort into learning about this stuff. But if, if you're someone who um, you're online, you're talking about these things, you're posting about it, you're making videos about it or, or podcasts, whatever. Uh, I feel like it's it's just intellectually lazy to not do your homework on these things. Um, and it's it's not hard. Like when the when they fully invaded, I think I read like four books on Putin, you know, in a mo- two months <laughs> or whatever it was. Just to just to give me some background and, and some understanding on what's happening, uh, in order for me to uh, publish and push content that's accurate and, and relevant, right? Um, okay, so let's pivot a little bit away from Russia, um, and let's talk uh, about uh, China and Taiwan. Um, a couple of weeks ago, or a month ago, or so, a month and a half ago. Uh, when things were kind of heating up, uh, the, the Chinese were running these, um, you know, military drills in the, these, these seas around Taiwan. Uh, I did uh, get a couple of emails from ISW, um, you know, about that. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the work that you guys are doing on uh, China-Taiwan? Sure. So we're very excited to have established a China program uh, last year. And to be conducting um, a few lines of effort, including a simulation, a planning exercise um, that I mentioned, which we're doing in partnership with the American Enterprise Institute to understand uh, strategies to defend Taiwan um, that go beyond what the Defense Department is focused on in terms of, you know, preventing the Chinese from crossing the strait, 
um, and all the multi-domain challenges that that Chinese threat poses. Um, that's necessary military planning, and a lot of that's ongoing in ways that are con constructive. Um, but what we're doing is taking a little bit of a broader approach to understand, first and foremost, what are the options available to Xi Jinping short of the full cross-strait invasion um, that might even be more attractive to him if the United States and our partners are not prepared to foreclose those options. So that includes things like, you know, is there a situation in which Xi Jinping will attempt a blockade, partial or full, of Taiwan to isolate and strangle it, um, to force its reunification, but without, you know, firing the first shot or in the expectation that it might be possible um, to coerce Taiwan into essentially its, you know, surrender um, without actually an open war. So we're exploring the alternatives available to Xi in part because we don't think there's enough attention on some of those alternatives. Um, also because they, they tend to fall sometimes below the threshold of what the United States is good at responding to. And our policy discourse is confused on the China problem set in a few ways. And those points of confusion sometimes echo areas in which we're confused about the Russians, right? Is it escalatory for the Taiwanese to be prepared to defend themselves against Chinese invasion? No, it's not escalatory to be prepared to defend so, you know, the U.S. policy position has been that we're not taking a stance on Ukraine or on Taiwanese, excuse me, independence, but we are against any forcible, you know, change in the status quo. So we're against the Chinese escalation. Well, what do we count as forcible? If the Chinese use all kinds of instruments of power short of kinetic pressure to compel the government in Taiwan to agree to reunification, you know, essentially against its will or the will of its population. Is that not a forcible change in the status quo? Um, so that's what our program is aimed at sort of starting to peel back and unpack in order to identify um, some additional steps the United States can take to strengthen our regional you know, posture and our regional partnerships and alliances. Uh, but then also to fix sort of our overall strategic appraisal of both the Chinese threat and, you know, what needs to be done to counter it. Uh, so what would some things look like uh, and that wouldn't be a, a sort of kinetic strike? Like, would it be things like, um, you know, them, you know, paying people and sort of uh, trying to get a political party to back, you know, reunification with the mainland uh, and and have them sort of win an election? Would it be things like that? And then also, um, what are some of the things that the U.S. is doing to strengthen, uh, strengthen their position uh, in the region and in the event of a kinetic uh, action by China? Sure. So we are looking at the Taiwanese elections that are upcoming early next year um, and how the Chinese are trying to shape that. Um, the... The issue here that this is nuanced, but it's important nuance um, because the issue for Taiwan is not whether the Taiwan, Taiwanese people and the Chinese people are one people. That's not the question. The question is whether the Chinese Communist Party is the legitimate ruler of all Chinese people. So this is a political disagreement um, more than it is a you know disagreement in identity. And that's hard sometimes for Americans, I think, to wrap our heads around, but it's important because the issue here is not China. The issue is Xi Jinping and his dictatorial, you know, communist party and the authoritarianism and brutality of that regime, which many, perhaps most within Taiwan, don't want to be subjected to. Um, again, I think that's relatively straightforward uh, if you look at it in these simple terms and don't allow yourself to get spun up in you know, a lot of the myth-making and, and Chinese screaming about them being the victims here. Um, so the elections will be key. That's early next year. Um, and in terms of looking at the posture, um, candidly, we've been focused on the elections in Ukraine. So I haven't really been read into what Indopaycom is doing at the current stage for the contingency planning for, you know, the, the big threat, which is the cross-strait um, uh, invasion. But thankfully, you know, it does seem that the war in Ukraine has given Xi Jinping pause um, in terms of trusting his ability to win that war, especially because the NATO allies did lock arms. 
And so I, I do know that there is effort from this administration to make sure that we're continuing to increase our partnerships in the Indo-PACOM region so that, you know, we can ideally marshal a more coherent regional defense. It's not just the United States, you know, against China. It's going to be important that there is a regional, you know, alignment there. And my hope is that this can lead to greater alignment between the U.S. and our European allies as well, because, you know, there have some been some within Europe that are less willing to challenge China or willing to, you know, break from some of the uh, economic relationships that, you know, will need to be broken or, you know, changed in order to reduce Chinese leverage. And so those things need to happen. And my hope is that as, you know, the administration does continue to focus on the China problem set, we'll see a lot more of that and a lot more learning uh, from the situation in Ukraine. Yeah, I, I do think that um, the the unification of sort of the West and uh, supporting Ukraine uh, probably gave the Chinese some a pause and and any potential uh, you know invasion plans, or uh, it at least made them sort of look at what's happening there and, and try and figure out like how they can avoid making some of the mistakes the Russians made. Um, you know, you see, um, in particular, like the president of France, he, he's made some statements that are sort of, uh, sort of counter to the, the interest of the, I think the overall West. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he, he may be sort of on his own in that. I think there was some backlash from the, the rest of the European Union um, when he made some of those statements. Um, but it, it's just interesting to see that the, you know, the, the sort of overall posture of the United States has changed um, when it comes to China. Um, uh, you know, the, China has experienced, you know, incredible growth uh, economically in the last, you know, five decades or so. Uh, but a lot of that was with the help of the United States and and uh, the Europeans. Um, but now that there is some resistance to uh, some of China's sort of predatory practices uh, when it comes to uh, intellectual property theft, or um, more recently, there's been these um, these sort of you know air quotes. Chinese police stations in the U.S., uh, you know, and, and they're really all around the world where they sort of harass uh, Chinese citizens uh, living in different countries um, to, you know, return to the mainland and things like that. And, and um, it, I think it'll be interesting to see how much they actually grow now with people sort of hip to uh, what they're actually doing. Yeah, we do need to see more of it. You know, there is still a desire to partner with China, you know, even in this administration, um, at least find areas on the margins for partnership. And I, I get that. But, you know, sometimes that comes at the price of a clear overall strategic picture of what we're dealing with here. Um, so, you know, things are starting to move. And, you know, my hope is that we continue to, to, to move in the right direction here and recognize the importance of allies and partners in confronting something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's been great to talk to you. Um, you know, I, I think these these topics are important. Uh, I think the work that you guys are doing at ISW is fantastic. Uh, like I said before, I've you know, I've shared um, reports and, and articles from you guys uh, plenty of times on, on my social media. Um, and I, I think it's important that uh and I guess this is part of your mission to sort of raise the level of understanding of, of some of these issues and and sort of bring the average person uh, into the the new realm of, uh, you know, sort of open source information and, and how that you can really get accurate information and reporting and analysis uh, by looking at, you know, what's happening on the Russian web, the Chinese web, et cetera. Um, so if people want to... Uh, you know, sort of keep up with you and, and the ISW, where can they go to do that? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you. Um, I'm so thrilled that our products have been helpful. And to those that want to, you know, learn more about ISW or sign up for our subscriptions, you can do that at understandingwar.org. Um, or you can follow us at the study of war on any social media platform. Um, or you can follow myself at Jenny Caffarella um, on Twitter and what have you.